Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. All right, the Acts of the Apostles. I didn't even get to put a number one next to this because there's only one book that we are going to study. But uh, let's do this, moving through the parts that we can rather quickly. When it comes to the author, that shouldn't take long and there shouldn't be much controversy, although modern scholars can make controversy out of just about anything. But it is easy to compare Luke chapter 1 verse 3, which as you remembered, it was four verses worth of intro. But when he says, it seemed good to me also to have followed all things closely for some past time to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And that's what we had in 1-3 of the Gospel of Luke. Acts 1, 1 and 2, you can just compare these as this first sentence goes right back to the Gospel of Luke. In the first book, as he looks back, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Clearly, this is presented to us as part two of the uh, work of Acts in researching everything carefully and presenting an orderly account uh, to this one person, a bit of a mystery, whether it's uh, representing a group, those that are loved by God, that is what the word Theophilus means, remember, one who is loved by God, or whether or not it was a patron or someone that he's writing to, that he is getting this, it's kind of a hired historian to put this out. Nevertheless, the point is, these books go together, almost unanimous support from very early on. As a matter of fact, one very early church father said this was originally one work, one book, even though it's designated by uh, kind of a volume one, volume two, first part, second part, which would speak a little bit, at least by one early church father, that this perhaps was written, as I said last week, we're not sure how far the gap was between these two books, but maybe they followed closely one after the next. So unless we're going to get ridiculous about the author, I think we can safely assume that this is Luke. As a matter of fact, there's a way in which you can say, well, okay, all you prove with that first comparison is that it's written by the same person, or at least to have the same paradigm here at the beginning of the book. But if you were to do this work carefully, and that is to use the pronouns and look at the pronouns we in chapter 16, 20, 21, 27, and 28, as we'll look at tonight and getting into the history of all that, we can take the 17 companions of Paul that are named in the New Testament by name. If you were to go through anything that that Paul names and associating himself with traveling companions in Colossians, in uh, Philippians, in Romans 16, any of those, you lay them all out and you say, okay, here's all the people that are named as companions of the Apostle Paul and traveling with him. And then you cross-reference all of those to find out in every reference to we in Acts 16 through 28, you will eliminate everyone but Luke. So there's a systematic way to do that. I didn't take the time to walk you through that, but that would certainly leave you if we're going to take the pronouns we seriously and all the other cross-referencing material we have in the New Testament, it leaves us with no one except Luke. And then you can work backwards, obviously, to the Gospel of Luke and say this is clearly Luke. Not to mention that we know these are sharing the the same style in terms of its vocabulary. And there's a lot of rare vocabularies. I think I said last week, we were talking about Luke, that if you're a first-year Greek student, you don't spend much time in Luke because if you learn your vocabulary and try and make sure you learn all the frequently used words in the New Testament, you're going to run into over 700 unique words in Luke. 
He loves uh, kind of that high vocabulary, 750 to be exact, high vocabulary, a lot of technical terms. You can see a lot of his training and learning and reading of uh, classical Greek and addict Greek. And anyway, you get a book that is some pretty tough Greek, probably second only to the book of Hebrews. And if you look at those words, I think about 400 plus unique from Acts and the rest from Luke. Not to mention, it certainly lets us know, as Paul said, that Luke was a physician, a medical doctor. Uh, you start looking for those medical terms throughout the books, and you, and you find both in Acts and Luke's. You, you see a lot of those. And you can read in your study Bibles and some intros to the book of Acts or the intros to the book of Luke, and you'll find a lot of those listed in some of these books. And we call those haypacks or hopacks. Some guys pronounce it that way. Legomena, book, words that are only used one time in the New Testament. That's one kind of of reference. And the other kind is that you only find it within the writings of Luke and Luke and Acts. And a lot of it is very technical. Some of it is medically technical. So bottom line is we shouldn't take long discussing this unanimous agreement for all those that matter that are going to be fair-minded that Luke wrote the book of Acts. And as I said before, if you take Acts and Luke and put those together, as I said last time, you've got, in terms of words and verses, more of the New Testament written by Luke than the Apostle Paul. Even though Paul has more individual books, this is the number one writer of the New Testament. I said the unique thing about Luke is his position, his uniqueness in terms of his heritage. So anyway, great. We've covered a lot of that. The date. This is also, we get very broad guesses about the gospels. We can be very specific about a lot of the epistles that we're going to read, particularly the book of Acts gets much more specific, which helps us even with the book of Luke. That one we can be perhaps more sure about if we think these were written close together. And I don't know how much I referenced last time. I couldn't remember, but Paul's two-year imprisonment in Rome is where it ends. It says he stayed there under house arrest in Acts 28, kind of ends abruptly. But if you piece together all that we have historically in the New Testament, we know that Paul comes to Rome in 61 AD. Some guys would say 60 AD, late in 60, early 61. So 60, 61 AD. The story, if it's a two-year imprisonment, and that's an accurate number and not just a, a broad generalization or average, nevertheless, you've got a two years. I don't know if it's exactly 24 months, but you're going to end somewhere between 62 and 63, AD 62, 63. Now, it helps us to know that there's no mention of Nero's persecution, which would certainly be noted because all of the opposition persecution of the church is clearly chronicled in the book of Acts. You have no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem, which would certainly be noteworthy as Paul goes through Jerusalem in his missionary journeys. So it really gets us to a place where we say the abrupt ending in Acts is because that's where he was when he wrote it. Paul was under house arrest in Rome, and it was two years after he said the length of time, which started in 61. So you can be pretty confident that the book of Acts was written in 62-63 AD, which is a nice tight number for us before Nero's persecutions. Purpose. Much like we had in Luke, the opening of this was to provide a reliable account, an orderly account. And of course, Luke is an orderly account of the works of Christ. The book of Acts clearly is an orderly account of the acts of the apostles, the works of the apostles. What did they do? How did the church then take the message and redemptive history of Christ and propagate that in the world? And so, of course, if my number's right on the crucifixion of Christ, which again, some guys shoot for 30 AD, I concluded 33 AD, and we end this in 63, 64 AD, you've got about 30, 31 years of history in the 
book of Acts. So that's the time span that we're dealing with. It does cover Western growth. And, I, and by that, I mean, if you think about the growth of the church that is going you know, through Syria and even out east, and you've got growth in Egypt and Africa, northern Africa down south, really what Luke is showing us, because he's a part of this, is the expansion of the church out west toward Rome, which of course is the center of all the politics and all the power of the ancient world. But it does give us one slice. There's other things going on, and we know that by the reduplication of New Testament manuscripts in various places around the ancient world. And of course, we have Western manuscripts and Byzantine manuscripts that are going in the direction that the history follows in the book of Acts, which of course is the power center. It's very important. So it does give us one picture of the direction of the growth of the church. So think about it going going west through Asia Minor. And every time we talk about Asia Minor in the letters of Paul, we'll talk a lot about the regions of Asia Minor. We're talking about modern day Turkey. And I'm going to force you to look at your maps in your Bibles or on your computers tonight. So we'll, we'll spend some time looking at where all these things are. Uh, but ultimately out to Greece and Rome. By the second missionary journey, we've moved across and over to Greece, which is Achaia and Macedonia in the ancient uh, regions, but uh, modern-day Greece, and off into Rome, Italy today. So that's what we're looking at. Just helpful to know the time span and the region all relating to the purpose of the Acts of the Apostles, which are, in this case, focusing out west. One thing you know about the purpose of this, clearly, and even the way it's written, is that this is about the inevitable growth of the church, the unstoppable momentum of the gospel, as I put it here, the unstoppable nature of Christianity, starting with a theme verse, clearly, that becomes the outline for the book in Acts 1-8, when Jesus says, you're going to receive the Spirit, you're going to be empowered, and then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, think geographically now, in Judea, that's the southern region of Israel, where Jerusalem is the capital, uh, in Samaria, just north of that, those are the traditional north and south of Old Testament Israel, certainly New Testament Israel as well, though the Samaritans were hated by uh, the Jews of the south and the Galileans of the north, and then to the ends of the earth. So we've got these concentric circles, if you will, of the growth of the church. And that was the unstoppable nature of what we're unfolding. And God does that through some interesting means like the persecution of the church, but he spreads the gospel out and he pushes the gospel out. And it's on every other page we're seeing new monumental directions in terms of the growth and the dynamic, unstoppable expansion of the church. And clearly, if you look at how this is all formatted in terms of the kinds of things that are summarizing and capturing the quotes from the preaching of Peter or Paul, even the defenses that are made or the longer sections of Paul's preaching, say near the end of the book, even before we get to Felix and Festus and Agrippa, we have a very apologetic nature to it. There's a very rational kind of defense of the gospel. So that's an exciting part of, I think, reading through Acts is trying to learn from the engagement that the writings of Luke, as he records the preaching of the apostles, how he's showing the intersection of the gospel with the culture, whether it's in Athens or Jerusalem or Antioch or on the missionary journeys. And I think it's very helpful for us to learn at how an aggressively evangelistic church is also engaged in in, in real cutting-edge, thoughtful, rational, cogent, logical apologetics. And what are they trying to prove? A couple things I think that make clear that this is not some kind of unbiblical cult. And by that I mean it's not some kind of non-orthodox God 
theology. It's not something that's taken a radical departure from Old Testament Israel and Old Testament theology. It's a, it is the fulfillment of that. So it's trying to prove that we're still in the mainstream, even if you look at the, uh, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, all these issues are trying to show this is what the Bible has always taught. This is what God is doing and what he promised he's fulfilling. And so this is we're not outside of anything that comes before it in the Old Testament canon. And certainly a lot of the defense of the gospel throughout the book of Acts is this is not a politically subversive group. We're not out to overthrow the government. Now, we're not out even to try and radically change the culture, which is interesting. Even the times you see like the Ephesians, the silversmiths rioting in Ephesus, it's not that Paul's there trying to change a culture. If you're looking for this trendy social gospel pursuit of social justice in our day, you don't find that in the book of Acts. So it's trying to show that this is not some kind of focusing on the temporal issues, as Paul wrote to the Colossians, which were a part of his evangelistic work as he writes back to Colossae and says, you know, we're setting our minds on things above, or to the Philippians, our citizenship is not here on earth, it's in heaven. So we're not really concerned about massive reconstruction of culture. We're concerned about the evangelism and life-changing message of the gospel. And lastly, I think you do see this in terms of this is not, pardon the typo there, a a disorderly mob, uh, as disorderly as that sentence is, which seems timely today with a lot of mob action going on in our world. And the point is we're not hyperactive, hypersensitive. We're not some kind of riotous group. As a matter of fact, they're rioting against us, as you see throughout the book of Acts. They're persecuting us. We're not out there militantly trying to upset the, the culture. So that's part of the apologetic push throughout the book of Acts that you can tie themes together throughout the book and come to those conclusions reasonably. All right, Uh, D, apostolic history. I think this is very, very, very important. We need to understand this is the Acts of the Apostles. The Apostles are presented to us in the book of Acts in a way that is parallel to what we see in terms of Christ's ministry. So let's make some comparisons. CP, well, let's compare. Let's compare Christ's ministry purpose. Uh, And that was, he said, I came to preach the gospel, not in terms of his redemptive work. I mean, obviously he came to give his life as a ransom for many, as we tried to highlight in the sermon this weekend uh, from last weekend in church. But when it comes to his ministry, his earthly ministry is not to come to heal all the sick people. Uh, It's not really to fix all the problems in people's lives. It's not to grant them all the requests that they have is to preach the gospel. Luke chapter four, verses 42 and 43. You remember this comes on the heels of a lot of activity and popularity that Jesus had. And it said the people sought him and they came to him and they wanted to keep him from leaving as you would too. He's doing things in your town that are transformative and they're miraculous and they're amazing and they want him to stay. And he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So I'm here giving this message that is contingent on my death that's coming. And so I need to get the message out of the gospel. And of course, that message was an extension of the groundwork that was done by John the Baptist, which was you got to repent of your sins. You need to see your sin, you need to repent of your sin, and now here's the answer and the redemption for your sins, and I'm going to preach that message from town to town. So that's what Christ said he was engaged in and purposefully trying not to get distracted from during his earthly ministry. So we're just comparing Christ's ministry purpose. Now Christ did a lot 
to authenticate that and prove he was who he said he was so that you should listen to him. Just prior to this in Acts 4.40, it says when the sun was setting, this is the reason they didn't want him to leave the town. All those, it says, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Christ and he laid his hands on them, uh, every one of them, and they were healed. So Christ is doing these miraculous signs and right after this, they say, you stay. My cousin's sick. My wife got some issues. My son is, could have a few things fixed with his whatever, his flat feet. You know, fix, my, fix our lives up. And he's, no, I got to go. So this helps us to see there's something about Christ and what he did that was spectacular and miraculous that was the authentication, as I put it here, of his message. And that is you should believe the message that I'm now sending this new revelatory information that fulfills the Old Testament. I'm giving you new information from God and I'm authenticating that. I'm verifying that by the things that I'm doing, but I'm not here to do those things. Those things are to assist in preaching the message of the gospel. As he says in Acts 2.22, I say he, that is Peter, when he's preaching, he's now trying to appeal to them to respond to the words of Christ. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, there's our word, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as, as you yourselves know. You were witnessing these things. You saw them. So you know that the things that he says should be believed. There was... A message to preach that would change people's lives, which can be preached right now tonight about sin and repentance and God's redemptive work. And the reason it was to be listened to, because if you look in the Old Testament, you're thinking, wait a minute, you're kind of moving beyond what we've seen in the Old Testament. I know it's a fulfillment of it, but why should I listen to you? Maybe the answer is in in Plato or Aristotle or Virgil or something else. Maybe I should read, maybe I should find all of this in the symbolism of the Peloponnesian Wars or something. No, the point was, hey, listen to me and this is it. We're bringing everything in the Old Testament to sharp focus and you should believe me because of the things that I'm doing. The things that I'm doing that the normal person can't do. I'm doing signs and wonders among you. In the words of Christ, John 10, 25, he even says to his critics, I told you, they're asking him, tell us who you are. I told you, but you don't believe. He says, the works that I do in my father's name, These miraculous signs, they bear witness about me. They attest to me. They prove that what I'm saying about me is true. He goes on to say later in that chapter, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, you're just not going to take my word for it. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I'm in the father. In other words, to say, I'm doing exactly what God has called me to do. I'm no normal person. I am the Messiah. Trust in me, the lamb of God, as John puts it, John the Baptist, that takes away the sin of the world. So Christ preaches a message that if you respond to it, which moves beyond the Old Testament, it was in the Old Testament, you're a sinner, repent of your sins, and trust that God will be merciful and forgive you. Rely on his grace. New Testament, repent of your sins. John sets the foundation, John the Baptist, and Jesus comes on the scene and says, now you need to know I am the Lamb of God. Trust in me. Put the focus in me. Put your faith in me. And he says, believe that by what I'm doing. I'm doing signs that no, no one else can do miraculous signs that not everyone who comes with a new message can do. So listen to me for that. That's the comparison. The same exact thing is going on in the book of Acts. The apostles' ministry purpose was to preach the gospel. I quoted Acts 1.8 to you. Jesus commissions them. You're going to go be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. That's what I've commissioned you to do. You've got a message to preach. And of course, that's what they were preaching. Acts 8.25. 
Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, just like Jesus, they would have said, that's our purpose. That's what we're here for. We call them missionary journeys, not prosperity preaching tours or not healing extravaganzas or get your miracle tours. This was, I got to preach the gospel to you. That's what we're here to do. So they had the same exact purpose. Now they weren't providing redemption. They weren't coming to give their life as a ransom for many, but they were preaching the same message that had the same sharp revelatory focus that went beyond the Old Testament in fulfillment of the Old Testament to say, Messiah has come, suffering servant, Lamb of God, trust in him. That's his name, salvation and no one else. That's what they were there to preach. Acts 5.24, every day in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus, Jesus the fulfillment. So that was their message. That's what they were preaching. And you read all that, I hope, and you go, wow, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be witnesses. We're supposed to be testifying. We're supposed to be preaching the gospel to people. We're supposed to be convincing people that Jesus is the Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Okay? We need all that. We need to know it. We need to understand it. We need to get the information that they're preaching and say, we do, we've got to preach the same information, all based on what Christ has done. The apostles then, just like Christ, were going to bring authentication to this. Jesus didn't write anything. Nothing was brought through the pen of Christ. He didn't write any books. He didn't deliver any pamphlets. He didn't write any tracts. He didn't put some kind of codified set of messages that he handed people. He went around orally preaching. The apostles come. They preach the same things. And they also come with a quill, with a pen, with a stylus in their hand. And they start writing. And these things get written down. To know, just like Christ, that their words are authentic. How do we know that's the message that should be preached for the next 2,000 years? Well, they had an authentication. Acts 5.12. Now, many signs and wonders. Those are key technical words in the New Testament. This is miraculous signs, things that break natural law, things that aren't normal. This is the magic of God. This is God doing things that normal people can't do. They were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. There they were. The church of Jerusalem was getting started. We went from a few hundred to a few thousand to 5,000 plus men and their families. And all of this was being authenticated by signs and wonders. They were breaking natural law. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 3 and 4 in the books of the New Testament that look at the apostles' work, they say things like this. You better listen to my message. You better do what we say in terms of repentance, knowing your sin, trusting in Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament messianic promises. Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Trust in him. How are you going to escape if you neglect this message of salvation? You can't turn from that. It was declared at first by the Lord. He spoke it orally. And then it was attested to us by those who heard They were the ones that that had the authentication of this message. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. There's our phrase again, signs and wonders. The apostolic authentication was just like Christ's authentication in that they would preach a message that was clearly the telescopic extension of the Old Testament that brought everything into sharp focus in, in terms of God's revelation. And then Christ did miracles to prove it. The apostles came, 
They were now supposed to, as was promised in the upper room discourse, to remember all the things that Christ had said. They were going to record these things. They were going to preach these things. They were going to lay it down in writing. And they had the same kind of authentication that Jesus had and that they did the same kinds of miracles, as a matter of fact, in greater volume than Jesus did. Think about this. And he's promised that. You can do greater works than me. No greater works than redemption. You're not going to give your life as a ransom for many. What greater miracle can you do than raising someone from the dead? Although they're going to do that. And they're going to have people being raised. from. That's the kind of thing he said is going to move beyond me and my oral message to you and your oral message in preaching and your writing message that's going to be codified in writing. Apostolic preaching, apostolic authentication. That's what we're seeing in the book of Acts, which makes this very interesting. Because what you see in this very early period, really before 70 AD, are these signs and wonders. The signs of the true apostle were being performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So the the signs of a true apostle, not the people that were trying to rally the Corinthians to be loyal to them against the apostle Paul, but because they had no miracles to go with them. They're saying things that Paul wasn't saying. And he's saying, listen, you know, among you on these missionary journeys, you saw these miraculous signs. So you believe our message and you believe what we said. And now it's being written down. Even as he writes this sentence, this message is being written down. That should help us to understand that the apostolic age was transitional and foundational. The apostolic age, this period of the apostles was transitional and foundational. And we get that throughout the writings of the New Testament in very clear passages like this. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Speaking of the Ephesian Christians, your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. If you read the context of all this, it's not just that Abraham's offspring are blessed if they trust in God and rely on him and confess their sins, but all the families of the earth be blessed through him. So we know this thing has gone to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And now you can be a part of that, you Ephesians in this Roman colony, this city-state that you're in. I mean, you're not a part of the covenant people of God, but now you're a part of the family of God. Built upon the foundation, this foundational thing of the apostles and the prophets who came giving you this message with miraculous signs and writing this information down for you. Christ Jesus himself, of course, was the, was the cornerstone in oral teaching and in the miraculous signs that he did. You need to think of it this way, and I like to put it this way, that apostolic a teaching in the New Testament was the apostles bringing you New Testament truth but they didn't have a New Testament in their hand. It was New Testament preaching because it wasn't Old Testament preaching. They were saying things like the dietary laws don't matter anymore. The Sabbath doesn't matter anymore. The priesthood doesn't matter anymore. The temple doesn't matter anymore. How can you say that? Because the Old Testament says it does matter. Well, because Christ has come. The fulfillment of all those things are here. They were a shadow of the things, and now the reality is here. Well, they're preaching the New Testament message that you and I can preach, but we're deferring to a New Testament written book. They don't have that. They're preaching New Testament truths without a New Testament. It's what we would call prophetic teaching of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when Daniel stands up and says, here's what's going to happen. This is what's coming in the intertestamental period. Or here's what's going to happen when Christ arrives. Or when Micah starts talking about the Messiah coming through the city, the little dusty city that David was born in, this little suburb in in Bethlehem or whatever it was, Moses speaking about the coming Babylonian captivity that was, what, 900 years, 850 years before it happened. Those were the kinds of things we would say, that's prophecy. That's God giving new information. That's God revealing things that would not otherwise be known. Well, that prophetic preaching that we're reading about, even in the book of Acts, 
is that kind of revelatory stuff that's happening. God is giving revelatory information. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 gives us a paradigm that would be helpful for us to see this in and think about it this way. And that is that if you look at this from a biblical perspective, when you have New Testament truth being preached without a New Testament versus the New Testament being preached with a New Testament, you've got apostles and prophets. I have to briefly explain that. Let me put it in a quick little chart for you. And evangelists and shepherds and teachers, as the ESV puts it. Poimen, which is the word for uh, a shepherd who leads a flock, who actually uh, didascos, he teaches, he feeds the flock. So that's one, that's one description, the pastor, teacher, or the shepherd and the teacher. Okay? Let's think of it this way. When you have new revelation, you have on the scene in the New Testament, here's the name for those that speak for Christ. They're apostles. They can come preaching this and they establish the movement. That's why the book of Acts is all about these acts of the apostles moving the gospel into brand new regions and moving it into Macedonia and Galatia and Achaia and Greece, modern day Greece and, and, and Rome and Italy. All of that's happening and they're setting up shop, preaching, and seeing people saved, being very specific, saying this doesn't matter anymore in ceremonial law. This matters. Sharpen your focus on Christ. All of these things. That's very authoritative teaching. The apostles established the movement. The prophets then come along and feed the movement. When you see in the New Testament, you'll see prophecy being described as the teacher. And the teacher then is teaching, but he's not teaching from the text of Scripture. He's not teaching from the writings of Peter or Paul or Luke or Matthew. He's standing up in a synagogue-style New Testament setting to worship and teach. And he's teaching them without a, without a New Testament in his hand. You've got the Old Testament, but you've got to build all that New Testament truth on the Old Testament foundation. And that's a pretty risky thing. We need people speaking for God. And much like the prophets in the Old Testament who would come along and would speak prophetically, as we see between some of the sentences in the Old Testament about people not only that were writing prophets, but preaching prophets. And there were probably many more preaching prophets than there were writing prophets. And they would get up and preach in a way that was in accord with the writing prophets, but they were the authoritative spokespersons. And many of them, as we see in the Old Testament, were also endowed with the authentication to break natural law. But they established the movement. The prophets come along, feed the movement, apostles and prophets. Now there's parody in this verse in Ephesians 4.11, and that is that you have those that come along after the apostles and after the speaking prophets that aren't preaching from a New Testament. They come along and they do the same exact thing. You see what's called evangelists. They come into towns. They have written scrolls in their hands. And those scrolls are written by Peter and Paul and James and Jude. And they come in and say, okay, here's the New Testament. And it was attested to us, much like the book of Hebrews puts it, by God in his gifts of signs and wonders. And they've written these truths for us. So let's unfold these truths and teach them to you. You need to be saved. Here's the gospel. We're going to set up a church. We're going to take Titus. We're going to take Timothy, the the books, that is, the pastoral epistles. We're going to set up pastors. We're going to set up ministry leaders. We're going to set up what it means and and, and what you require of those leaders. And, And all of that is given by the evangelist. We might call them church planters today. They go in and set up shop. Then the people that sustain the movement, they continue to feed the movement, which is the church that is established, are the people that are then seen as the leaders, the pastors, and they feed the flock. They're teaching. They're directing. What are they doing? Well, they're preaching a New Testament message with a New Testament in their hand, just like the church planners are coming into town and saying, here's what the church should be based on scrolls and books in their hands that come from the New Testament. New Revelation, Apostles and Prophets. 
Once we have the work of the apostles and prophets completed, now we have evangelists, church planters, and pastor teachers. Pastors, we still use that word. It's an archaic word. We didn't change that word, but that's what they are. So evangelists in the Bible aren't just people that rent out stadiums and preach the gospel. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But the point is, you see the word evangelist in the New Testament. You're talking about someone who's coming in and setting up shops, setting up a church. And then they move on to become, and maybe they move out of the town and move to another place to set up another church. But the people that sustain the church from week to week are opening the New Testament scrolls and codices, books, if you will, and they're teaching from the writing of the apostles. You see that paradigm there? That's helpful for us, I think, to connect with because then you're going to start to say, well, wait a minute. I read in the Christian website or whatever that there is an apostle up in Reading or there's an apostle in Phoenix or we got to... We've got to figure out how that might work. First thing I got to say about that is the Bible is very clear. There are only 12 apostles. There are 12 apostles. Now there are apostles in the technical sense, just like there's angels in the technical sense. And then there's apostles rarely, but sometimes used in a non-technical sense, which simply means what the word apostolo means. And apostolo in Greek means a sent person, someone who's sent, just like a messenger means someone who brings a message. An angel means a messenger. Now, the messengers that are technically called angels in the Bible are the ones that come from God and they're supernatural beings and they come from time to time and bring a message like to Zechariah in the temple when he's going to be the father of John the Baptist or Mary who's going to bear Jesus and a guy, a messenger named Gabriel comes and he's a supernatural messenger. Well, that's most of the time we see the word angel used. But every now and then you see a non-technical use of it, a messenger who's just a human messenger who comes with a message. But the Bible's focused on primarily the technical use of the word, which is these heavenly messengers. When you see the word apostle, same thing. Most of the time we're talking about one of the 12 Matter of fact, sometimes it's one of the synonyms used in the Bible for the apostles is the 12. They're called the 12, certainly in the Gospels. But you're saying it doesn't seem that way because we see a couple passages where you see a couple people that are called apostles. And you're right. You got Barnabas. That word is used, not word used in the way that the title is used in a technical sense of the other 12. But I know by the time we get to heaven, still we only have 12. Revelation 21, 14, the picture of the eternal state pictures this city, this 1,500-mile cube city that has a wall and 12 foundations. And on those 12 foundational structures of the the walls of the city, there are 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So if we're to ask God, God, how many apostles are they? Capital A, technical sense of the word, he's going to say there's only 12. And so I know this. When a guy says he's an apostle in Reading or there's an apostle in Phoenix or there's an apostle in Cleveland, I'm saying unless it's a resurrected one of the 12, it's not the apostles. And I don't think that's happening. Matter of fact, I'm confident that's not happening. So there are 12 apostles. More on that. What were the requirements? The word itself, very clearly, throughout the context of its usage in the Gospels and the word itself, means a sent one that necessitates the sending object. Who is the subject of the sending? Christ is. They're apostles of Christ. He calls his disciples together and he appoints 12 apostles, even that word, to appoint them, to choose them and to send them. It's almost a strengthening of the word itself. Apostle means sent one. And now I'm taking an apostle, I'm appointing an apostle, and I'm presenting the sent one. So to be an apostle, you have to be sent by Christ. Now, start to get into a little bit of the book of Acts content. You might remember in the first chapter of Acts, they said Judas just hung himself and he's dead. He falls down and his gut split open and he's dead. He's a traitor. 
He's the son of perdition, the son of destruction, as ESV puts it. So we should replace him because, you know, Jesus loved to call us the 12, the 12, the 12, like the 12 tribes of Israel. So we need another one. The apostles deduced in Acts chapter 1, we need another one. I guess what we need is someone who's seen the, the living, resurrected Christ, was with us from the beginning, and can take that role of Judas. Here's what I'm suggesting. You can't just assign that role to someone who's seen the resurrected Christ or been there in the earthly ministry of Christ because an apostle just on its own has to be that you're sent and specifically commissioned by Christ. And there's only 12. There's only 12 in the Gospels and there's only 12 in the New Jerusalem. So I'm with the guys in Acts 1. I hate to call them the guys, the respectable apostles, that we, we need a 12. But you're going to have to have one of them that is commissioned personally by Christ. Acts one twenty one, by the way, was the passage. So the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, that's the one we need to pick. And they pick Matthias, as you might remember. But I don't think you're going to see his name on the walls of the New Jerusalem. And I don't think you're going to see Judas's name on the walls of the New Jerusalem. We need someone encountering Christ and Christ physically commissioning him. Which, guess what? We've got someone like that in the book of Acts. And he becomes the major figure in the book of Acts. And you're a Sunday school grad. You know who I'm talking about. All right. I brought you to this, have I not? There's a lot of miraculous stuff going on in the book of Acts. And because of that, you read the book of Acts and you say, wow, all that stuff that's going on, that'd be really cool if that went on now. And matter of fact, that's what we've had in the history of the church been relatively quiet, except on the fringes of the church when it comes to this topic until about 1900. And about 118 years ago, we had a new movement that was all of a sudden now, you know what? We want to do the things that are in the book of Acts. We want to do the things that are in the gospels. And so we started a movement of trying to seek to do the very things that were in the New Testament the Gospels in the book of Acts, because they're miraculous. As John Wimber famously put it up here in Pasadena one day, he said, you know what? I, he said, I read the book of Acts and I said, when do I get to do the Bible stuff? And, and he was part of creating what we call the third wave. They called it the third wave of the Spirit, which is kind of a renewal of this miraculous signs and wonders movement. And there's always, especially today, because no, everyone's afraid to say anything negative about any of this stuff because everyone else is sincere and who's to doubt them and let's just believe their reports and all of that. But you've got to realize when it comes to, to these movements, these movements are looking at the miraculous, particularly in the book of Acts, and saying, well, they're normal people, I guess, aren't they? And they're doing things that are miraculous, so let's, let's do some of that. Well, I've already set you up to help you to understand the foundational nature and the transitional role of the apostles and the association of their authentication, which was specifically named 1 Corinthians 12, Hebrews chapter 2. It was the miraculous signs and wonders. So let's define the miraculous and see if we can get through this a little bit. Letter E. That's what the dot is above the number one for. I just want to put it this way. A miracle, as broadly as we can define it, is God's obvious intervention. It's crediting God with something, and it seems like that was an answer to our prayer. That was a good thing. That was God somehow intersecting with my life circumstantially. And, man, God did something big there. Let's just speak as generally as we can in those terms. Lots of things in the, in the book of Acts were credited to God intervening. Here's an example. Acts chapter 12. There was a jailbreak. And it was a kind of intervention that was miraculous that falls into the category of the words, the subwords, if you're going to say God's interaction, these subcategories of signs and wonders, because it was a suspension of natural law. Acts chapter 12, you might remember, 
It says, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and the sentries before the doors were guarding the prison. Sounds like a pretty secure situation. And behold, an angel of the Lord, technical use of this matter of fact, you add of the Lord. And we're not talking about Jim who was sent by Rhoda, who was waiting for them at a prayer meeting. We're talking about the heavenly being that appeared to maybe not the same one that appeared to Zechariah or to Mary or to someone in the Old Testament like Lot or Abraham. An angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. Now, if I'm going to cast light somewhere, I need a light source. I got to have fire. I got to have, in our case, a light bulb. I got to, here was light coming into this prison supernaturally because a personage, a heavenly personage is said to have been standing there in this prison. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. You know, the rest of the story, the gates of the city, and even how Luke puts it, opened by themselves and they came out. So you've got a description of a heavenly being coming and rescuing Peter from prison and gates opening by themselves, which they have no remote controls or pneumatic motors. This is a miraculous suspension of natural law. That's beyond the natural. That's supernatural. Angels are supernatural beings. There you go. Jailbreak. Acts chapter 12. Later in the passage, verses 11 and 15, two passages back to back, Peter says to himself, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. They were expecting to do bad things to me. They were going to kill me. And I know now, I'm confident the Lord sent his angel. So this came from heaven. This was a supernatural rescue. And then it says, Peter describes here to Rhoda at the prayer meeting, the the servant girl, and, and they had the meeting in the house, described to the whole group, once she finally opens the door, how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. So I know the big category is God did something good for God's people. In this case, Peter, God's man, the pastor, was able to have something good happen because he was afraid he was going to die in this prison. He thought he had more sermons to preach. God did something to intervene. So there's the big category, God's obvious intervention. The subcategory is, I'm confident, I'm sure, that this was a supernatural being, an angel from heaven, that did this for us. So this is a kind of intervention I'm going to call the category one intervention where supernaturally something was done outside the bounds of physics and space and time. God does something crazy that we would say is a miracle. There's a different kind of intervention going on later in the book. Acts chapter 16. This time it's not Peter, it's Paul. There's a jailbreak that takes place in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi. And about midnight, you might remember in verse 25, Paul and Silas were there. They'd been flogged. They were I'm sure bloodied and tired, and yet they were praying and had enough joy to sing, even at midnight, hymns to God in the middle of the night. And the prisoners were listening to them, and then suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were, this gets back to a very simple word in, 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 in scripture, one of the paradigm words for you first year Greek students, or second year Greek students, you all remember this word, it just means it, they were loosed, they were loosed, very different kind of expression of this than we had in Acts 12 when Peter has this sense of some supernatural messenger doing supernatural things and Luke recording his doors opening on their own. This time, the bonds that were probably put on the rafters or the beams of this prison, which is just a small dungeon in Philippi, and uh, all of that was broken loose in the way that it was set up because there was an earthquake. Now, earthquakes, we know how those work. Even back in the day, they had a sense of how they worked. Not that they were primitive animistic people, but we have a lot more information about plate tectonics, about geology, about 
slip faults and thrust faults, and we know why the ground moves and sometimes takes structures and messes them all up, and they don't work the way they were designed to anymore. This was a jailbreak, I would suggest to you, that is working within the laws that God made. So there are God's interventions, even as Paul later goes on to say, he credits God for rescuing him. And the point isn't that God didn't intervene and answer prayer. It's that one was done suspending natural law, and one was done working within the laws that God made. What was the intervention? The amazing timing, the providential timing. It was more than mere chance or luck. This wasn't just things moving along because we don't believe in that anyway. It was God working in space and time within the laws that he made. What I need you to understand as you think about the uniqueness of suspending natural law is that it is a, a rare event. It doesn't happen as often as you might think. Here's a chart. I didn't give you all the fill-ins, but you can fill these in quickly now, at least abbreviate some of these things to get a sense of what we're talking about. God's obvious intervention in the Bible. I'm going to categorize these just as I did, working within natural law and working outside of natural law. Working outside of natural law is certainly a thing that would be like making the front page of the Jerusalem Post or the Orange County Register. It's a big deal. Let's call those GT ones, a God thing. It's a God thing. It's a God intervention, and it's of the first order. And then there's God things of the second order in the scripture that just like the Apostle Paul, Paul's going to say, God got me out of prison, but then he's going to explain it was through, in this case, seismic shifts within the ground. That's something we can explain within the law that God made. They knew what earthquakes were. Even they date things in the book of Acts by earthquakes. They know what earthquakes are. These are not things that happen supernaturally. They're things that happen naturally. Now, if you look in the three categories of scripture, and some of you have heard me teach through this before, but think about these three categories, the categories that relate to how even scripture is broken down in the Bible. We talk about the law and the prophets. That's how Jesus liked to talk about the Old Testament. And then he came on the scene saying, I'm going to give you a cup of the new covenant. I got a new covenant and a new thing to tell you about. Fulfill the Old Testament, sharpen the focus on what all these promises were all about. So law, prophets, New Testament. If you think about the people that started this in terms of who did God choose to be the apostles in the New Testament, like the prophets in the Old Testament, the messengers that came and did miraculous signs, well, you see these with Moses and Joshua that starts the first writings of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch in 1445 BC. Then you have the writings of all the prophets, which begins with the classical period of the prophets, which started with two very unique individuals, Elijah and Elisha. And they started a school of the prophets, as you might remember. And from that flowed this history of the prophets and the writing prophets that we have in our Bibles. And then the coming of the Messiah, which not just Jesus, who didn't write any of this down, the oral teacher who did the miraculous signs. Then he commissions his 12 apostles. One of them is a betrayer and one takes the place of him. And we have 12 apostles. We have Christ doing miraculous signs. And from that comes the law. It comes the prophets. And what comes from that is the New Testament writings. If you were to look back in the Old Testament and say specifically, what did we have going on in the life of Moses and Joshua in terms of the suspension of natural law? You could think of the 10 plagues, for instance, and say, well, some of them were natural. God just worked within the natural laws and some were supernatural. Understand that. But if you're just going to look for within their whole ministry, things like the sun standing still, which people will scoff at, but the God who made photons and light and physics and knows physics better than Einstein and anybody today at, at any school, we know that God can do whatever he wants with what he makes. That's certainly a God intervention to the first category. There are 10 of those. And I didn't mean to mention the plagues to make you think it has to do with the plagues. Some within the plagues, GT1s, a lot of them are not. 
We have a lot of non-GT ones, things that God is doing at the call of his prophets, at the time of his leaders, demanding it, asking for it, praying for it, you know, having a, a, a storm or the weather respond like the drought. I mean, that's not in the time of Moses and Joshua. It wasn't Elijah and Elisha. That's the kind of thing to pray and to have the weather stop at your at your call. That's the kind of GT2 I'm talking about in the life of Moses and Joshua. There are several of those. Manna, certainly GT1. Coming of the prophets, we have even more. 21 suspensions of natural law that you would say, and this is my own count, looking at every one of them myself. You may have a different decision on some of these than I did, but I think if you think carefully about each of these, I think you've got about 21, at least twice as many with the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Elisha, by the way, as we were just reading in our daily Bible reading, weren't we? If we weren't, then I was doing it on my own, but more miracles of the, of the first order through Elisha than there were even through Elijah, which is interesting. 45 GT2s. Things that were miraculous in terms of God's intervention, but we wouldn't say miraculous in this first order, as I like to say, the suspension of natural law. We're still crediting God with it, but God didn't have to suspend any of the rules that he made to make it happen. With the coming of Christ and the apostles' ministry, we've doubled it again, more than doubled it. 46 suspensions of natural law, things that are breaking the order that God designed within nature. And again, this may not be a completely accurate number. I have to go on what's said in those passages. And you may look at those and imagine it differently as you try to figure out how might have that have happened. But you see a shift now. You have miracles that you can say, like we saw in Acts chapter 16, that were, I think, explainable. You can't explain the timing, but you can certainly explain how it happened because the text explains it. You've got even less than you do the GT ones. That's 20 non-suspension national law. God intervening within the laws that he made. Look at that right there. You add all those up, you got 77 in the first column. 77 GT1, 77 interventions of God suspending natural law. And if you look through the rest of scripture, you only have at least identified as specific miracles that are described as GT1s, only 86 total. Now, you can find a couple passages I can understand that summarize that he did a lot of miracles in this place, and we don't know what those are, and they're not itemized. But I'm just looking at the ones that are itemized in Scripture. You only have a couple summary statements like that. But in that, you might have another 5, 10, 15, 20, I don't know. But you got, you got about 100 or less in the whole of Scripture. In the 1,500 years, when you're just looking at the narrative, starting with the law, going all the way through the New Testament. And you can see how they're grouped in three, what I like to say, three rashes of the miraculous. And I think that just helps someone who kind of wants to open up a Bible, like John Wimber or someone else who wants to say, I just want to do the Bible stuff. Well, you want to do the Bible stuff. Most of the Bible does not have miracles on every page. That's all I'm trying to say. You've got several supernatural, spectacular miracles, several. You've got 86 that I can identify specifically, and probably closer to 100 if you take some of the sentences that summarize a few of those, and I don't know what kind of miracles those all were. Nevertheless, that's not a ton. There's a lot of books, a lot of pages, a lot of chapters. And you've got a lot of chapters and a lot of years without any miracles being recorded in the scripture. That just helps get all of this in perspective, I think. And it also helps this, helps you to manage your expectations. If you think, well, every Christian in the Bible, right, surely got, you know, their 10, 15, 20 miracles, and I haven't had any yet. I've been a Christian for 20 years, and where's my miracle? Uh, just know this, most people in the scripture had no miracles in their lives, no suspensions of natural law. I'm not saying God didn't intervene, but he intervened within the laws that he made. Therefore, I'm saying manage your expectations. Expect God to keep the rules that he made. Expect that. He's made rules. Here's a rule, for instance, that you're going to be a little kid 
You won't know how to talk. You won't know how to take care of yourself. You're going to have to learn that naturally. Then you're going to get middle-aged and probably be the strongest years of your life and most productive. And then you're going to get older and it's going to be harder to remember stuff and you'll be weaker and more fragile and your bones are going to break. And then you're going to probably die. I'm going to say it's more than probably that's the expectation. So the rules that God made, which is that you are going to die, the day you eat of the fruit, you surely die. Death is going to invade the world. The fabric of the universe is going to be cursed. Genesis 3. You ought to expect God to keep that, that rule. And here's a rule. When living organisms die, they stay dead. That's the rules that God made. Did he, did he reverse that? Oh, in a handful of situations he did. And he did that in very unique situations. Only one of them was from that point on impervious to death. And that was Christ. That's why he was the first one that was resurrected. And we say that not in the sense there weren't other people that were revived from the dead. I'm just saying that Christ is the one who gets the resurrected body. You can argue about Elijah perhaps or Enoch, but that's a different discussion. We can get into that later. But for the sake of time, I'm going to say this. The Bible's pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 15. That was unique. And I'm saying the others that were died and were revived, resurrected, and that's a legitimate word for that, but they were resurrected to a fallen body and would eventually die. I'm just saying you're probably expecting at a funeral, if I conduct a funeral, you don't, you're probably not expecting me to start with a prayer of resurrection. Am I right? You don't, want me to, you don't want me to start that way. And why? Because your expectation is that God's going to keep the rules that he made. And if someone died and they're in a box, they're, they're going to stay in that box until the resurrection, which is in the future. You should expect that. Oh, and by the way, when you get sick, you should expect that if you're going to get well, God is going to get you well within the laws that he made. Even when Paul had his pastor there in Ephesus, Timothy, he writes him in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, in a little parenthetical statement, he says, no longer drink water only, which is an interesting statement. As a pastor, he saw, even with watered-down first-century alcohol and wine, that it was a bad thing for him to ever be thinking that he was a wine-bibber, as it was put in the old King James, that he would somehow be, as it's, as it's put in the pastoral epistles, given to much wine, that he said, it'd be better for me just to drink water. So he was a teetotaler, as they put it in the old days. He didn't drink any alcohol. But Paul said, listen, obviously you can't get drunk, not supposed to get drunk. It take you a long time anyway on watered down wine to the first century to get drunk. It had a whole lot less alcoholic content than today's wine, certainly beer or cocktails or hard liquor. None of that even comes close to what we had in New Testament. Nevertheless, take some wine. Use a little wine, a little wine for your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, that verse doesn't fit into a lot of people's theology today because here you got the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul the Apostle Paul, who certainly had, in many situations in the book of Acts, he was seeing people healed. And he's saying, hey, my protege, my number one most favored, you could argue, pastoral intern. I put you in this place, and you know what? Here, if, you're, if your stomach's sick, take some Pepto-Bismol. Right? That's what you're getting from the Apostle Paul? What a letdown. You know what Paul was expecting? He was expecting God to keep the rules that he made. And if you're going to get well, you may want to put a little salve or a little oil on that cut. You may need to drink a little wine for your frequent upset stomachs that you, that you have. And that's the kind of thing that you see in the New Testament when you recognize that the exception is the miraculous event. It's not the norm. It's not the rule. It's the uniqueness of God suspending natural law. You don't see that regularly. But if he were to drink a little wine for his upset stomach and his frequent ailments and he got better, they'd credit God with that. Just like in the Old Testament, you find that God condemns people not for going to the physician or Paul having a physician as a traveling companion. It's that when they trusted in the physician, they got to seek God and utilize the medicines of the day and the doctors of the day. So manage your expectations and expect God to keep the rules that he made. And here's how I would put it. Affirm the purpose that drove the GT1s. Affirm the purpose 
that, that was the reason for the GT1s. Affirm, for instance, as I just put it, the resurrection. Do you not believe that Christ was raised bodily from the dead? Bodily from the dead. He was dead. He was dead. He was dead. And then he was raised. You believe that. You should then proclaim, believe, and trust in the soteriological and the eschatological purpose for that historical reality. Not to mention even the people that were revived back to fallen bodies that would decay and later die. That was a sign of God's soteriological power over death. And his own resurrection was the one archetypal, the prototype of the resurrected body. And we ought to affirm that. We believe in the resurrection. So if you come to me and say, do you believe in the resurrection? Well, then you ought to be praying for resurrection at every funeral you preach. No, 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 no. I'm affirming what that resurrection miracle was there for. I affirm its soteriological purpose, that it was the affirmation of my salvation, that it was the point of my justification being sealed in terms of God verifying that. And then I also believe in its eschatological purpose, that I'm supposed to, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, see that as the pinning, pinning my hope on that. It is the foundation of my hope. Just like Christ was raised from the dead, I'm going to be raised. So I affirm both of those. But I don't let those GT1s drive my current expectations. I'm not now saying, honey, when I die, can you just spend about an hour or two in prayer at least and have me resurrected? Because you're a good prayer. You have a lot of faith and God is powerful. I believe all those things. Or I could say, hey, Lazarus was raised. I mean, I give up maybe after four days because Lazarus is in the grave for four days. So on the fifth day, I guess you can just go ahead and have me embalmed and put me in a box and put me in the county cemetery. No, I'm not going to say that. If I'm dead, I'm dead. Now, don't Don't write me off before I'm dead, but if I'm dead, I'm not expecting you to take your biblical confidence in the miraculous and saying, I'm expecting that as the norm here in my life. I make this point very simply to people when I talk about their need for money. If you want money in your wallet and you need it to pay your bills or to buy groceries and your wallet is empty, I'm going to say this, as I should and every Christian should, you ought not be anxious, you ought to pray. I believe that. But when you pray, I'm not saying here's what you ought to do. God can make something out of nothing with an appearance and history of age it never had. He can put serial numbers on pieces of paper that are printed on just the right paper that will pass every scanner in the county of Orange. So you go out and pray and then poof, God will put money in your wallet. So pray, shut it, and then open it. And you should see some there. And if you don't, you need more faith, close it, keep praying, open it, and then it's going to be there. Or if it's not yet, get a few more people to pray. That's not how we ask people to pray. Matter of fact, we would say, if your wallet is empty, pray. I'm going to say that. And then I'm going to say, go to jobs.com or figure out something that is going to allow you within the laws that God made to go poof. Once on the 15th or the last day of the month, they write you a paycheck. And you know what? When that happens, here's the verse I knew I jotted down at one point, 2 Timothy 3.11, as Paul said, my persecution sufferings happened to me at, at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now, how many of those were their rescues in GT1s? I don't think any that I've read in the book of Acts, but he credits God with them because God providentially works. So someone's going to ask me, do you believe in miracles? Yes, I believe in miracles. Do you believe in historic miracles? Yes, I believe in all the historical miracles of the Bible. I believe that they were GT1s and GT2s. What's your expectation in your life? I expect GT2s when God so chooses to grant them, and I'm going to pray. And it's going to happen, I assume, when God shows that he's intervening. Effectual prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. When those things happen in response to my asking and my praying, but they're going to happen within the laws of nature. So if I get a brain tumor and you say, oh man, I'm really concerned. Mike's got a brain tumor. So let's pray that God takes it away. I want you to pray that. I really like you to pray that for me because I'd like my brain to work a little bit longer. So pray for that. 
but don't sit there and keep me in the, the, the CAT scan machine and say, okay, roll them out. We're going to pray. Now roll them back in and check it again. You know, roll them back out. We're going to pray some more and then roll them back in and check it again. Yeah, there's that mass, you know, that 15 centimeter mass in his brain. But, you know, we're going to pray and you're going to roll them back in two seconds later and it's going to be gone. But I think you would say, hey, we're going to pray. And I hope he goes back for his next checkup next. I hope it's smaller. And I hope two months from now it's even smaller. And I hope even we could see this thing go away. Can that work within the laws that God made? Sure it can. Does it sometimes completely go against what the doctors had expected and the prognosis I've been given? Sure it can. Now, God may want me dead by a brain tumor. I don't know. But I'm asking, it would be nice if you wouldn't do that at this particular point in my life. So I'm going to pray. And if God answers, I'm going to say, even if the odds were completely against me, just like the Philistines were killed by the Israelites when they are outnumbered 20 to 1. I know this. When those GT2s took place and God made the underdog win, every single Philistine that died, died because a sword went through his chest. You see what I'm saying? Every single one. So I'm thinking every bad cell in my cancerous body that you're praying will go away. And I would say that God can do miraculous things. But what kind of miracles am I talking about? Acts 12 or Acts 16? I'm expecting, managing my expectations, that what I'm expecting God to do is to intervene into time and space in my life within the laws that he made. I would suggest that's the proper biblical way to understand the miraculous because the miraculous had a purpose in Scripture and it wasn't God backing himself into a corner that he couldn't get out of without the accepting of natural law in some situation. As long as we're in the controversial realm, let's talk about the tongues miracle. Because I know what you're thinking. There's tongues everywhere in the book of Acts. So let's figure that one out. Well, number one, I put it this way, letter F, because it is a GT1 in the Bible. Tongues, the tongues in the Scripture are a miraculous sign. Note, for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22. Thus, tongues are a sign. That's a word that's been used in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, all throughout the Gospels, all throughout the book of Acts. That word is a word that describes, even as I just said it to you in, I just quoted it for you in Hebrews chapter 2, that deals with the, with the miraculous, the suspension of natural law. They're a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. Tongues are a sign for believers. That's the word, the technical word for a miracle, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy, literally the Greek text reads, is for, for believers. And it doesn't say that it's a miracle. Now, if that is not intended to be there, the question is, did Paul want it to be supplied in the second half of this sentence? If it's not supplied, then we're talking about the kind of prophecy that was going on even in the church that was not new revelation. It was the kind of of standing up to talk about what Christ did, what he taught, repeating what I'd heard in the presence of many witnesses. Perhaps I heard Paul come through town in Corinth and preach this, and I'm telling you that, and I'm edifying you based on that, and I'm becoming that prophet with a small P. And that doesn't mean I'm saying God's got a plan for your life and you're going to have two kids and one's going to be the president. I'm not talking about that kind of prophecy that passes for prophecy today. They call that fallible prophets. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about the prophecy that was necessary in the early church of people repeating and reiterating the oral prophetic word of the apostles. That's when we wouldn't need that word. If we're talking about prophecy that is new revelatory work, then I guess we are talking about something that suspends natural law because revelation is itself a miraculous thing. It's God giving to us what we wouldn't otherwise know through the prophets. GT1, tongues. It was recognized as such. Let me show you. Acts chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Note these words carefully. When they spoke in tongues in Acts chapter 2, they were gathered there for that very unique moment at the birth of the church. At the sound of the multitude, they, they were bewildered. We're hearing them speak in tongues. Why? Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. 
And they were amazed and astonished. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How in the world? We're from all these different countries and the countries are listed and the places are listed. How can they do this? Why? They're amazed. Look at the words. Bewildered, amazed, and astonished. Why? Because this is a miraculous sign. It authenticated their New Testament message to three different groups. Number one in Jerusalem. Here were these folks that were waiting for the Spirit to come that Christ said is going to be 50 days after I'm crucified. So you guys wait for that. And then when it happens, the Spirit's going to come and you're going to be my witnesses. And the first thing you're going to do is speak about me being the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the focus being on me in terms of the focus and object of your trust. So all of this now you can say about the Old Testament ceremonial law doesn't matter anymore. How can you speak with authority? Because you do miraculous signs. And the first miraculous sign they do for all the people in Jerusalem that are there listening to them preach are the folks that come to the pilgrimage feast. They're bewildered. And they said, this must be something. First they said, I think maybe they're drunk. Because you've got a lot of people speaking in a lot of different languages. And everyone's hearing clearly the message they're saying. Some were speaking in this language, some in that language. And everyone was saying, wow, these are Galileans. How do they know our language? Judea and Samaria. Acts chapter 10. The first Gentile convert, which is at the crossroads of Judea and Samaria, was in Caesarea, Caesarea Maritime on the coast. And here was this miracle a second time where this entourage that's with Peter who's dragged there by God, they all start speaking in a language they can understand that they weren't supposed to know. They were a bunch of Romans. And they're like, how, how do they know this? How can they do this? They authenticated that message because Peter was going to have a lot of explaining to do to talk about how he won a Roman centurion to Christ and he got the same Holy Spirit that they did. And so the miraculous authentication was there. And then, to put it in terms of the outline of the book, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, Acts 19. There were 12 Asians from Ephesus in that colony that speak in tongues, and they all go, wow, they have the Spirit too. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. You have these three groups being authenticated in terms of this very unique gift that is a suspension of natural law. And you can add those words if you want to, because it would be just as amazing, bewildering, and astonishing as it was in Jerusalem, as the apostles showed up and authenticated the gospel, breaking down another barrier as the gospel goes to the end of the earth. And by the way, it's rare in the book of Acts, because I just gave you the only three references to tongues in the book of Acts. I started this with you probably saying there's tongues everywhere in Acts. And I said that on purpose because there's not tongues everywhere in Acts. The gift of tongues is three times discussed in Acts. Well, it's all over the rest of the Bible. No, there's only one other reference to it in the Bible, and that's in 1 Corinthians. And that's the one you're always hearing people preach on today when they're trying to get you to speak in tongues. But I'm telling you this, there are three references in Acts. They all nicely correspond with the outline of the book of Acts. They're all authenticating signs that bewildered, amazed, and astonished people because it was a sign that they said, wow, this is something specific and unique, and I can see this is a God thing. By the way, the only other New Testament reference in the first Corinthians, I just want to show you a little of the flow of thought here. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, it starts in chapter 12 talking about spiritual gifts, which of course includes that gift that was seen there because it's, it lists the sign gifts, these miraculous signs, gifts. Most of them are not sign gifts. The majority of them are not, but the few that are are listed in that list. And then he says, here's what these are all about. Each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Problem in Corinth is they weren't always concerned about the common good. So he spends a whole chapter. It's a short chapter, but the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, saying you got to love. You can have all kinds of things going for you, but if you don't love, you're a waste of space. That's what was being taught. Now think that through for a second. That whole point was this is something God endows you with to serve and build up and edify other people. 
And in chapter 13, you guys need to learn to love each other. This is what giftedness is all about in service in the church. And then in chapter 14, he says, we got a real problem in this church. That's not, that's not what's happening when it comes to this gift. He says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, which goes counter to everything we've just learned in the last two chapters. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. And he goes on to say in that passage, so seek that. That's what you guys should want. So with yourselves, whatever you're doing here, if you with your tongue utter speech that is not intelligible, now that's the first time we have that hint. Right now, what's going on in Corinth is something that's unintelligible. That is not what's going on in the book of Acts. In those three chapters, chapter 2, chapter 10, and chapter 19, it was intelligible. It was intelligible to those who heard it. And it was a miracle because they said, they're bewildered, they're astonished, and they're amazed. How can they do this? These are Galileans. They don't know our language. So it is with yourself. With your tongue, you utter speech that is not intelligible. How will anyone know what is said? What are you doing? You'll just be speaking into the air. Now, I don't have time to go through all the details of chapter 14 here, but I've done it before. And if you haven't heard my four or five-part series, uh, I called Untwisting the Tongues. It was a verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I would encourage you to get it. It's all for free. Download it, stream it on our Focal Point website, fpr.org. But what I'm trying to point out is there's a problem here. And what I'm saying is what was going on in Corinth that he's condemning, not the gift that he's affirming, because he does affirm the gift in chapter 12, and he affirms the gift in some spots in chapter 14, but he's certainly showing the inconsistency of what they're doing with what he says gifts are all about and what real tongues are all about. I can make this very firm affirmation. What tongues are in the New Testament are not unintelligible utterances. We do see that in 1 Corinthians, but it is not commended. Actually, I think it's condemned. Well, there is that passage about angel talk, 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels and I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. I guess that's unintelligible speech, right? I'm speaking with the tongues of men. Well, first of all, he's condemning whatever it is that you're doing without love and the symbolic, the analogy of it's just like a clanging symbol, it's no good, certainly gets around to the motivation of what they're doing in chapter 14, which is trying to edify themselves with this thing. But what this thing is, is what I'm saying, certainly not unintelligible language based on this phrase, that it's the tongues of men and angels. The point is, if I had prophecy, gift of prophecy, I could unravel all mysteries. This is a hyperbolous way of talking about you could know every language. You could be gifted by God to speak any language of any person. Well, what no is angels, angels, angels. Do you know that every time an angel speaks in scripture, he's intelligible. He's speaking the language of the receptor every single time. We don't have any, you know, nanu nanus coming from angels in the, in the Bible. Never, ever. So the point, though, is if an angel were dispatched, which was very rare in the Bible, that it did happen, but let's just say God today dispatches an angel to Kabul, Afghanistan. Do you think that angel could speak the language that needed to be spoken? Absolutely. What if he had to go to Greece? He could speak any language he's sent to speak. And that's the point of this passage. You don't get angel talk out of that passage. You may want to think about angel talk as something that you imagine to be, but there's no example of angel talk that's not intelligible to the receptor in every case. That's all I'm trying to say there. Well, it's groans. I've heard that passage in Romans 8, verse 26. It's groaning too deep for words. Well, let's look at that passage. Likewise, which is very important because we're tying together several things in this context. We've just talked about creation groaning, and now it says, likewise, the Spirit helps our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. I could stop the sentence there and go, well, that's great news. I'm praying the wrong things. The Spirit is praying the right things before God for me on my behalf. That's true. With, now he's tying all three of these objects together with groanings too deep for words. Here's the point. 
The world is groaning, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. Christians are groaning. We have the first fruit of the Spirit, and we can't wait. That is the tie of all three of these segments. The world groaning, which, by the way, is all metaphorical because I can listen all day long and I can't hear. It's not seashells. It's not, it's not literal groaning. This is a sense of the world is subjected to futility, to quote Romans 8, and it can't wait to not be subject to futility. It can't wait to be liberated when the sons of God are presented. So this is a metaphorical sense of the world can't wait to be done with sin. It doesn't want to be laden with sin anymore. Christians shouldn't be hard for us to say, I can't wait for heaven. I can't wait for the kingdom to come. I can't wait for the redemption of the body. I can't wait for that. I'm groaning for it. I can't wait for those things to happen. That's the anticipation. And the spirit too, by the way, he can't wait for all this to happen either. With groanings too deep for words. And even if you were to say, well, it's something, it's groaning, it's noises. Well, even in this passage, not words. And certainly everything about tongues in the Bible is words. That's the whole point, by the way. If you translate the word tongues, you'd find in a dictionary that that Greek word means languages. That's the point. So in this text, I know these are the two proof texts that people go to to say what I do when I'm speaking in tongues. I know no receptor hears it in their own language because it's not a language anyone could could decode, but it's something that's just unintelligible because of angel talk, 1 Corinthians 13, 1, and groanings, Romans chapter 8, verse 26. And I'm just saying neither of those established that as an expectation of trying to understand this gift that was clearly laid out for us historically in the book of Acts. In verse Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 and 22, you have this statement. It's tied to Isaiah's indication of judgment. Brothers, we don't want you to be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, yes. But in your thinking, be mature. Think carefully. Think biblically. Then he takes them back to the Old Testament. In the law, is it not written? Now he's quoting Isaiah chapter 28. Even though he says law, maybe he is referring to Deuteronomy 28, which starts that theme, but he's quoting the words of Isaiah 28. In Deuteronomy, it speaks about the judgment that's going to come on people because of people from a foreign land with foreign language are going to come and oppress them. Well, it, he now almost quotes verbatim what's going on in Isaiah 28, verses 11 and 12, by people of strange tongues, strange languages, by the lips of foreigners. I'll speak to this people, even though they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So here's this statement of indictment. You're not going to listen to me. So what you're going to hear is the languages of other people. Now, back in the law, I'm going to go back to the Torah. If we're literally talking not just about the Old Testament, sometimes that word can, because law just doesn't mean the law code of Moses. It means the instruction. The word Torah in Hebrew means instruction. So if we are thinking of the law, I can go back to that Old Testament passage and see this is what Isaiah is building upon. And that is that one day when you disobey me and I reject you as a nation, you're going to have people that speak a different language. And in this case, all different languages, different tongues, and you're going to hear those, and that'll be a sign of the fact that you missed the boat, you rejected me, you didn't listen to me. It was a sign of God's judgment. And if you want to look at this even from a biblical perspective of Christ saying in Luke chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. I've sent my messengers to you. You've stoned them to death. How often I would have gathered the children together like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you weren't willing. So behold, your house is forsaken. I'll tell you, you will not see me again until you hear, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, the city is going to be destroyed. He said it multiple times in in Luke. We've studied it twice in Luke as we headed into triumphal entry week. And we see it in Matthew very clearly, parallel passage. He says, you're going to be overrun by foreigners. Now, what was the ultimate fulfillment of that? Well, he said, not one stone is going to be left upon another. The Romans are going to come in and destroy you. This will be a time, the times of the Gentiles are going to trample this city underfoot. That was a picture of God's judgment. And the point is, you Israelites, you should have listened to the prophets and responded rightly. Here's one reason 
You're going to see that you've missed the boat. You're going to have all these people of other languages. So all I'm saying is that connection to the indictment of God is part of what's being underwritten here in 1 Corinthians 14, saying you need to understand this purpose. And that is that it's a sign. It's a sign to unbelievers, not to believers. The point is that unbelievers can now see that there's something that's gone awry in them responding wrongly to the gospel. And the point is you got Gentiles, you got barbarians, Scythians, slave, free men, all coming in and becoming children of Abraham in the spiritual sense because they're being forgiven by the Messiah. The only other thing I would say, people say, well, I've heard it. I've heard it. Well, I've heard it too. I've heard a lot of ecstatic utterances and unintelligible speech in church with Christian songs playing in the background. I understand that. But you need to understand many groups speak in ecstatic utterances. You can go all the way back to 1100 BC, which is the earliest I can find of the Egyptian god Ammon. This is from 1100 BC. The reports are that as people got together in this temple, they whipped themselves into a state of frenzy. They continued throughout the night speaking in ecstatic utterances or ecstatic languages. The speaking gibberish or frenzied nonsense. That's been going on and recorded historically back to 1100 BC. Uh, Delphi and Sybil, per Plato's writings from the 4th century BC, speaking of people uttering in frenzied, unintelligible, ecstatic utterances. The cultic priests in Virgil's writings from the 1st century BC, talking about the occultic priest, again, in a frenzy of kind of an altered state of consciousness, speaking things that no one could understand. Pagan religions, both ancient and modern, in lots of places, and we could, I could chronicle all those for you and footnote them, plenty of examples of that. The Gnostics, specifically from the second century AD, after Christ, one of the features of them was getting themselves into a place where they would speak in utterances that no one could understand, unintelligible, in many cases, this baby talk, simplistic, syllabic uh, expressions. The Monetists, from the Janetists and the Irvinites, and there's a lot of cult groups, and I should say heretical groups, even within Christianity, throughout church history, where they were known for for this kind of ecstatic expression. And you might surprise you, of late, the Mormons. Even Joseph Smith himself talking about it, defending that. And at the dedication of the Salt Lake City Temple in Salt Lake City, Utah, the elders gathered around as they dedicated the temple and all spoke in ecstatic utterances. That's the kind of thing that at least when people say, well, I've heard it and it's something and it must be God, I'm just telling you the ecstatic utterances I don't think are what we see in the book of Acts and Acts 2 all the way through 16. That is not what we have going on in the book of Acts. It is what we see, I think, in Corinth, which I think is a problem that Paul's trying to correct. Now, you may not agree with me on that, and I don't want you to get mad at me. I don't want you to leave the church, and I just want you to know I'm trying to, in trying to summarize really quickly, the book of Acts presents something a little different than what you're seeing in a lot of different places today. Simplified outline of the book. I was hoping to do Acts and Romans tonight. I got up very early in the morning. I thought, that's well, so I'm going to do that. We're going to do that. Let's give you an outline at least before we let you go. And again, this is a simplified, simplified, simplified outline. Preparing for outreach, which is, you know, all the things that go on, the ascension of Christ, the coming of the Spirit, the promise of the Spirit, all of that in Acts chapter 2. Evangelism in Jerusalem, 2, 5 through 8, 3. So much happening there with the early apostles preaching of Peter, the growth of the church, the communal nature of the early church. Jerusalem is the hub. Peter is the pastor. And it's exciting. The persecution starts setting in. Evangelism in Judea and Samaria. Because of that persecution, starts to scatter the church in many ways, all the way through the conversion of Cornelius in chapter 10, all the way up through the conversion of the Apostle Paul. We'll talk about those in more detail next time. 
and then evangelism to the ends of the earth. And most of that, of course, is uh, the Apostle Paul. That's the focus on his ministry and his, and his missionary journeys. But I guess living in Southern California in the 21st century, when we've had 100 years of a revival of a movement of trying to see the book of Acts simply and not as the church has seen it for centuries as a foundational transitional period of the Acts of the Apostles who are in a different category than the average person or any person today, maybe that little extra attention on that topic has been helpful. If it's raised more questions than it's answered, I would suggest not only that you listen to the messages, at least on tongues, and the fifth message is a sermon about the miraculous, but maybe even pick up a couple of the books on the reading list in in that, or in our bookstore, you can find some and bone up on this, or talk to me, whatever. I'm happy to talk about all this, but I'm out of time to talk tonight, so let's pray. I'm sad. Pray for me. Very, I know. You should, you should. You should say awe.